Good morning. Yesterday we heard some of Paul's teaching on marriage. Today he will advise those who are married to unbelievers. Remember that this section of 1 Corinthians contains Paul's answers to questions he had been asked. That being the case, what he says here first is probably in response to someone asking if they were married and then became a Christian, but their spouse was not a Christian, should they divorce the unbeliever or remain married? The last part of the passage we will consider today is essentially a call to contentment. This is a good word because so often in life our problems can be boiled down to a lack of contentment. Listen now as I read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 through 24. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition which, in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul begins by stating a general principle. He says that it is him, not the Lord, which means he is not basing his answer on a specific teaching that he had received from Christ. That does not mean that we need to call into question what Paul says, since we believe all of Scripture is inspired by God. The principle is very simple. If a believer is married to an unbeliever, and that unbeliever consents to remain in the marriage, the believer should not seek a divorce. Paul now offers the rationale for his teaching. Paul gives two reasons why the believer ought to remain with the unbeliever. The first is because the unbelieving spouse is made holy because of the believing spouse. Paul is not saying that the unbelieving spouse is saved by their connection to the believing spouse. The most fundamental meaning of the Greek word used here is set apart. What Paul is saying is that the unbelieving spouse is put in a unique position to be exposed to the gospel in a much deeper way since they are in the same house with a believer. The second reason that he gives is that their children are clean and not unholy. Paul uses slightly different words to describe the effect of a believer on their children. He says that children are clean and not unholy. Again, he is not talking about some magical transference of salvation. Paul is talking about God's covenant relationship with his people. Throughout Scripture, God deals with his people through a covenant promise, often within families. 
Those who receive the promises are believers and their children. Children raised in a Christian home are not perfect, and they're not guaranteed of salvation. But they are related to God in a unique way and have greater access to the truth because of their parents. If the believing spouse leaves and their children remain with the unbelieving spouse, that connection is lost. But there is one more pressing question. What if the unbelieving spouse leaves? Paul says, let them go, and that the believer is now free. I believe he means free to remarry, since earlier he said that the one who was divorced needed to be reconciled to their spouse or remain unmarried. This is a change from what he said in that particular circumstance. Paul then ends with a word of hope and encouragement. There is hope that God will use the believing spouse to bring the unbelieving spouse to faith. So if you're in that situation, hold on to that hope that God may use you to bring your loved one to faith in Christ. Now we go to verse 17, which seems like a significant digression from where Paul was previously, but in reality it is not. In verse 17, Paul says that after a person gets saved, they should lead the life God assigned to them before they were saved. In the context of his discussion on marriage, he is saying, if you were married before you were a Christian, stay married. But it extends to all of life, not just the marriage relationship. And we see this sometimes when a person becomes a Christian and immediately thinks they need to quit their so-called secular job and become a missionary or something like that. It is possible that that is what God will call a person to do, but the general principle is to remain where you are. Paul will give two specific examples to emphasize his point. The first example relates to circumcision. Circumcision was the covenant sign that was applied to all Jewish males on the eighth day after their birth. In the Old Testament, this was significant because it indicated inclusion in God's covenant. I do think there is another reason that Paul uses circumcision here, because in the early church, some Jewish converts were telling Gentiles that in order to be saved, they needed to not only believe, but to be circumcised as well. So Paul asks, at the time of conversion, was anyone circumcised or uncircumcised? If the person was circumcised, Paul tells that person not to try to hide the fact that they are circumcised, and if they were not circumcised when they came to faith, they don't need to get circumcised. Paul then says that circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing, but what counts is keeping the commandment of God. The external right isn't what matters. What matters is a heart that is changed by grace, that responds to God in obedience. The second example Paul gives is that of a slave. The kind of slavery Paul is talking about is not the slavery that existed in the American South prior to the Civil War. The term Paul uses here is bondservant. Bondservants typically chose their station, possibly in payment of a debt or to avoid being destitute, and they were paid for the work that they did. Bondservants were usually able to buy themselves out of slavery at some point as well. But that doesn't mean it was desirable. Generally, bondservants weren't treated very well in society. Paul says to that one, to that slave, that bondservant, don't worry about it. Freedom from sin does not mean that the slave ought to expect physical freedom. He tells them if they're able to gain their freedom, they ought to pursue it, but that they also need to understand the greater freedom that is offered to them by the gospel.
What about the one that was a free man when he was called? Paul says that they are to recognize that they are slaves of Christ, and they should not become a slave to men. Paul understood that freedom from sin is a much greater freedom than the freedom that is prized in the world. Paul concludes this section with the refrain he has used throughout, In whatever condition you were called, remain there. But he does add a little more this time. He says, let him remain with God. Ultimately, our condition in life is determined by our union with Christ. When that relationship is primary, we can be content in whatever else we have been called. Today, I want to pray for our school, for our board as they continue uh, working through the process of looking for a head of school. We pray that God would grant them wisdom. And we also want to pray for Amy Metzger as well as she has taken on uh, the responsibility as the interim head of school. We want to pray that God would continue to uh, give her strength and encouragement and energy to do that work to which she has been called. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the board that you have placed over this school, for each of those uh, men and women who have been called to that position. And I know that they are uh, facing a, a, a decision that's really important for the future of our school. And so I pray that you would be with them, that they would be guided by your spirit, uh, that they would be equipped uh, for this task to which they have been called. And I especially want to pray today for Amy Metzger. I know that when she agreed to be interim head of school, uh, we didn't know anything uh, about COVID or uh, any of the uh, the difficulties that would go along with having school uh, in the midst of this pandemic. And so I prayed for her. I just lift her before you, ask that you would give her uh, moments of encouragement and strength, and that you would equip her, as you already have, but you would continue to equip her uh, to do the work uh, that she has been called to do. And I pray that uh, uh, those who uh, work here alongside her uh, would be a source of great encouragement to her as she does this work that she has been called to do. Father, thank you for this day. Be with us. Help us to do all things so that the name of Christ might be uplifted and glorified. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our King. Amen.